today's episode is a series of conversations I had as part of the Global Sales Science Institute. The Global Sales Science Institute is a non-for-profit body of mainly academic institutions from around the world who collaborate uh, with the latest research and sales techniques. We were asked earlier in this year to host a series of talks with uh, senior sales leaders. And on this episode, I'm joined by a variety of sales professionals to discuss the whole topic of current climates of sales in the environment which we now find ourselves in with the pandemic. We have sales leaders from SKF, from SOTI, from Royal Mail Group, SUSE and Elastic, huge companies who have a different variety of sales processes and markets that they sell to that we explore further in the conversation. I do hope you enjoy the episode. First of all, I can't tell you how excited I am that I've got such a great group of people together on this call. It, I mean, you are all incredibly well respected, certainly in my domain area. And uh, the fact that you've given up um, 90 minutes of your time at quarter end to kind of share your insights and insights and points of view, I think is just incredible. I asked John earlier on if he knew what the GSSI was, and uh, he said he didn't know too much about it apart from the brief briefing notes that I gave. And Karen, I might ask you to say a few words, even though I haven't sort of set you up for this, but um, Karen, do you want to say a few words just to give the background? You can probably give a better background to the GSSI than, than I can. Sure. Hi, I, I'm so thrilled to be here today. I am Karen Piesker. I'm from Toronto, Canada. I'm at Ryerson University, but I studied in the UK and lived there. Lynette was my supervisor. I went to Cranfield. Paul and I did some work together. Phil and I actually met at a global sales science uh, conference, uh, which is fantastic. I, I come from sales, actually. I worked at IBM and Lexmark for 15 years and was fortunate to work in 15 different countries. So I'm very passionate about sales leadership in the global sense. And, and I think our UK, the people I've worked with there, I just makes me happy to see you. I think you're one of the best in our industry. Uh, people I've worked with there are so, you, you're leading on many fronts in sales research and in the sales profession. So thank you for taking the time to join us. The, the Global Sales Science Institute is um, a wonderful opportunity where we get practitioners together I like it because it involves practitioners as well as academics, and we talk about sales research and, and make sure that, that we're doing research that's relevant to the sales profession and useful for, for sales professionals. And, and that's something that's wonderful about this. So all of your ideas will be taken and utilized and maybe will spur new research that will be, rele that will be relevant and uh, important for our, our field. So I'm just going to say um, kind of a few words by means of introductions of, of all of you here. So we have quite an interesting cross-section of industry represented. I'm just going to start with Michael, Michael Crean. Michael Crean is the um, sales director, sales and marketing, regional sales and marketing director for SKF, looking after Western Europe. Um, I don't know how many of you know who SKF are. Anyone not know who SKF is? Hand up if you don't know. Okay. No problem. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Someone doesn't know who they are. So, so, so SKF make ball bearings. And, and probably there's, um, their product is in a huge amount of 
um, equipment or transportation that we are currently using. You know, um, I'm sure Michael could give more, more, more background to that, but, but no, there are manufactured ball bearings um, and probably the, the world's largest manufacturer. Is that right, yep. Michael? Yep. Yeah, uh, based, based, uh, based out of Sweden. Um, uh, managing uh, a team of 650 employees, this is within Michael's region. They have 22 salespeople based in the UK and, but Michael also has sales teams in Europe. They have, he has 120 people working in, in, in Europe. Samantha, who will be joining us shortly, um, is the VP of EMEA Sales, working for an organization called Elastic. They have about two and a half thousand employees worldwide. They have 50 people selling in the UK and they have 270 people working in Samantha's EMEA sales organization. Uh, we have Sarah Edge, um, sales and marketing director of SOTI. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, Sarah. Well, actually, some people do pronounce that. Well, I say SOTI. SOTI, okay. <laughs> With 1,200 employees in the telco sector, um, over 350 um, salespeople working, is that in the UK and DMEA? Yeah. Yeah, so 350 uh, salespeople globally. It's a company privately owned about 1,200 people. It's actually the IT sector rather than telco. Oh, the telco, okay, thank you. Um, we have Paul Devlin, who is the chief customer officer for SUSE, um, turning over about half a billion dollars annually. Um, in the UK, 25 salespeople and 800 salespeople worldwide reports eventually through to, to, uh, to Paul. And we have John Nicholson, who is the sales director of, of Royal Mail, um, just recently taken the role of, what would you call it, UK sales yeah. director of the whole operation. Including yeah, parcel for Including parcels parcels and letters so in the logistics sector. Um, they have 144,000 employees, 400 salespeople actually work in the UK in the sales force. And you don't have any people working outside of the UK. Um, so that's just a very, a very short introduction of, of, of kind of who's who on the, on the panel. Um, all of you I've known in some form. I think two of you are um, ex-alumni from the Executive Masters, that's Sarah Edge and, and also Paul Devlin. Um, and uh, uh, I think, Michael, you've got a cohort of students going through the Masters at the moment, and we work very closely with Royal Mail as, as well across all their, their different levels of, of, of sales teams. But it's the first time that we've all come together for this kind of session now. Now I'm going to, um, just for the purposes of the people who might be listening in and evaluating the, the kind of data, just say um, a few words about uh, the chairs of the panel. So we have two different chairs. So Lynette, could you introduce yourself briefly as, yeah. as co-chair? Thank you, Phil. Yes, so I'm Professor Lynette Riles. I'm a Pro-Vice-Chancellor at um, Cranfield University and Chief Executive of MKU, which is a proposed new model university in Milton Keynes. Uh, I was the UK's first ever Professor of Sales 
And my areas of research interest are things like uh, CRMs, I'm interested in technology, sales technology, customer profitability, um, and then more recently, sales behaviours and sales leadership. So back to you, Phil. Yeah. Thank you. So I think we're very lucky to have uh, Lynette with us on the, on this uh, on this call. I think the first time I met Lynette, your your leg was in a, a plaster cast. I think you'd just broken it skiing it or something. Absolutely, it wasn't a client. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, and just a few words for myself for the benefits of those that are listening to this. Is I'm the CEO of Consalia. We're a sales business school. And, uh, and we, have, um, we have quite a large number of enterprises now going through our undergraduate and postgraduate sales uh, related degrees. So um, I think I, I sort of cross between practitioner and the academic world and, uh, and, uh, and, and love both actually, love both, both sides to it. Okay, so let's get into the, the actual um, the interview questions. We've got a set of foundational questions. These are more fact-based questions that I think will enable those listening in and uh, researching these, um, at this particular session with understanding the context of your world. And we want to keep the foundational questions fairly, fairly short. Um, and to give you a chance to give a bit more background to, to your businesses and how they run, the kind of sales methodology and processes that you have in place. The main body of this session is going to be around the situational questions where we've got more time allocated. And I think this is going to be more conversational and a chance for us all to work together as a, as a group. Um, Lynette is going to play a role with me in asking some of the questions. Um, as well so but let's just let's just get started if I could and I'm going to keep to the structure that you've been sent all, already um, so who to start with I don't know if I could start with um, with Sarah um, to begin with on the foundational questions about if you could give us a, an overview of the selling function of your company um, and 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 to go into its markets customers and maybe some of the competitors mm -hmm. that you're having to deal with yeah, of course. Um, okay, so uh, we're a privately owned company with head offices based in Canada. Um, we actually have a, a suite of mobility solutions, and I'll try and simplify that. Um, the core product is a, a product called Mobile Control, and it's actually a product that helps businesses manage their, all of their mobile devices. And that would be enrolling their devices, uh, managing them out in the field, making sure that apps are secure. Uh, we have a help desk solution so we can, we can remotely access devices while people are out on the road to fix problems. Um, and plus a whole other suite of, of solutions for that core product. Uh, and we also now have extended out our product suite. So we have a rapid app development tool. So for businesses who need to have apps, but don't want to pay the big costs of having developers create their apps, we have a tool that enables a very quick, quick creation of apps. Uh, and I mentioned briefly the help desk uh, solution that we have, that's another new addition. Uh, and we also have now a similar way that we manage mobile devices. We also have a similar product for IoT devices. So we've just started out with um, printer management, but we'll be expanding that out to you know, heating solutions and a whole host of other devices. 
Brilliant. So in terms of, you know, who do you, who do you sell your solutions to? Who are your so customers? So we, have, yeah, so, um, so actually, funny enough, we've obviously got John here. We've got Nord Post in, um, in, in our Nordic region. So we do actually have the, the equivalent over there of um, post office. But we, in the UK, we have the likes of um, McDonald's, we have Tesco's, um, we have um, Just Eat, Deliveroo, uh, the co-op. We have a whole load of transport logistics customers. So DX Freight, Wynn Canton. Um, we have lots of retailers. So we have Halfords, River Island. Um, we have pubs like JD Weatherspoon. We'll have hotel groups like Travel Lodge. So you probably would never have heard of SOTI, but I was quite surprised when I joined over a year ago. We've got over a thousand UK customers, um, that most lots of them are household names. Right, that's brilliant. And in terms of your sales force, then how, how do you how do you uh, uh, recruit your sales team? So we have it's it's an interesting company because the the, the founder of the company is the CEO. So it's quite a different setup to something I've worked in before. And he likes to do everything in-house where possible. So we have an in-house recruitment team who do practically all of our recruitment globally, um, uh, which sometimes is tricky. So I'm, for example, I also look after Israel and South Africa. And I've got a UK-based in-house recruitment team currently trying to fill positions out there for me. So it's not always easy, right. but that's how the business likes to, to do things. Brilliant. So in terms of your sales process, perhaps you could just talk us quickly through the steps of your sales process. Yeah, of course. Um, so actually, the business has put a lot of time and focus on this. So we, we, used a value, we use a value selling approach and um, we're trying to actually shift the whole kind of sales organization to this at the moment, which is a little bit tricky. So we're trying to move that conversation away from price and product and features and instead be talking about, um, you're trying to understand the, the problems that businesses are facing. Um, and also beyond that as well, you know, the strategic ambitions of, of companies. And so what are they ultimately trying to achieve? Uh, and then what their business problems are, and then how what we do can help resolve some of those business problems. And we try to make that as ROI based as, as possible um, so that we really can try and sell the benefits of, of what we're doing. Great. And I've, I'm sure we'll come back to some further questions on that a bit, a bit later on. But if you were looking at the key determinants of success for selling in your business, what would it, what would it be? What would be the, the top, top in, things? In terms of winning business, Phil? Yes, or? in terms of winning business, what would be the, the key determinants of winning business? Yeah, okay. So I ultimately have a, a revenue target for, for my region. Um, and I guess my region is, is UK, Ireland, South Africa and Israel. So I have that number and, and ultimately, obviously, in software, we're selling licenses. So, okay. so it's, I guess it's quite obvious you know, the bigger the customer, the more licenses we sell, you know, the greater the right. revenue that way. We're also trying to upsell our other suite of solutions. So the core business is in this core product. Maybe right. you know, 90 percent of our revenues are from the, the original product. Yeah, we're now trying to expand out and sell the other four products that we now offer, uh, which is the, probably the biggest challenge because you've got this legacy sales team who are very much and, and also legacy partner base that are used to selling the one product. Right. And we're now trying to, to go beyond that. But success, obviously, is hitting that revenue number and 
winning new logos is a big drive to win new business because we see obviously that's that's where our growth comes from uh, and also selling this new suite of of new products great thank you well let's let's move on to um perhaps we could move on to michael at SKF. Okay. Um, do you want to ask the questions again then? <laughs> yes. Yes. So let's go through the selling function. What are the, you know, what's the. Okay. Um, we've got a pretty diverse range. So if I started by explaining a bearing could cost 30 euro cents or 30 P could cost 50,000 euro or 50,000 pounds and even more than that in some applications. So in effect, we've got such a diverse range of customers and we sell into the original equipment market, which means the bearing goes inside a machine and the machine gets sold. And those people have got a different type of capability and buying relationship from your maintenance and, and repair people who it's a paper mill, it's a steel mill, it's a food manufacturer. And some of them are skilled, some of them not so skilled. So they need them on a replacement basis and their costs of failure are high. It can be five, 10, 20,000 euro an hour. It can be a lot of different challenges around contamination, quality, whatever. So coming back onto it, the sales force, it tends to be geographic, um, but you overlay that with some key account relationships because there are large players with heavy engineering and design capabilities. So if I gave you an extreme but visible example, a wind turbine, you don't just put one up, you don't just put any sort of bearing in there. There's a huge amount of engineering and design work that comes into play, but you've got a small pizza maker in some town in the UK, who's got a couple of bearings, he'll buy them through a distributor. So another part of our business is to give access to product by having it with distributors who have got reach and skill because our sales force is actually larger customers where we can afford to be there. And then we leave a significant part of the market to distributors um, and then they have to take that to market. So it's quite a diverse range of skills and capabilities. And we're known as the bearing company and that's where we came from. But Sarah used some words that are pretty similar to our logic and our challenges. We want to move from selling the product to selling rotation. Now, conceptually, that's quite difficult in, in, in relation to maybe software as a service, uh, but the idea of selling uptime output is where we are going, and that's starting to require some quite fundamentally different skills and capabilities. So lots of different sorts of people in the business. Some have grown up in it with lots of relationships, and they know where customers are. Um, so quite diverse mix. Mm, thank you. Um, I think you probably described a little bit about the market and customers, competitors, perhaps. Okay. Um, it's an interesting market in that the, the, the legacy players are all long-term Japanese, European, American. Um, it's a very capital intensive industry. You don't just turn up and start making bearings. The, the, the machine tools cost a lot. The ability to have precision down to microns. And for those that don't relate, uh, a micron is, a, is a, a very small part of a hair. So it gives you an idea mm -hmm. of how, how, how much precision is required mm -hmm. to give you the reliability for a domestic appliance into a car or something else. So we've got these competitors. We're all known for the products, but we're also stretching into related products and services and applications mm -hmm. that go beyond that. Um, and so it is a 
intense industry from the application engineering and the design capability. And then that's, I think, how you create demand from the OEM, what goes out can go back in. So you invest well for, into the original equipment market, and then that gives you the aftermarket. More recently, um, Eastern European, the old communist countries and China have become the new competition. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. So where do you recruit your salespeople from? Uh, I, I feel a bit guilty when I answer this one as well. We're not as well structured. I would say 50-50 internal and external. Um, external, it tends to be we, we advertise for a role and we look at the attributes of the person. But a lot of our good ones come out of customer service or engineering roles into sales. Um, and, and I think that we find that those people are good value because mm -hmm. they actually have more of a culture of, and ethos of the business. That could, can also be a constraint when you're moving into different areas. So as we're evolving, we're having to bring more people in from the outside. If you're looking at describing value and con concepts, that's a different challenge to an engineering solution. And so, you know, we have to confront the, the shift of value from us being the knowledge holder to the internet or whatever, having it. So we're, we're, we're having to shift the way that we engage, but I would still say 50-50 in-house um, promotion, development, next step, uh, or external, and then external after that. Brilliant. Thank you. So what, what's a, what, what sort of sales process do you, does your team just sort of adopt? Uh, I, I, saw, I saw the question and I've got to give two answers. At one side, it is as simple as price and quote. Have you got this um, and can you supply? And so that's the, the mindset of some of our customers. And strategically, OEMs do try and dumb products down. So they, they ask for a price and quote and they'll ask more than one supplier. So you, you've got to be thoughtful about how you answer that one. But the more fundamental part of the business is building value and longevity into the relationship so that in effect you've got the business over years and that you continue to deliver the requisite reliability which delivers beyond the purchase price because the there's an ISO international standard nomenclature for bearings which makes them theoretically easy to compare you said that we are one of the big long-term players. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of capability hidden within the product. So how do you actually get the right level of value for that? Uh, that that's, the, that's the challenge of the future. So pricing and quoting at one end, it is as simplistic as that, through to um, targeting new business, the new logo part, or um, basically evolving and developing an existing relationship from a supply one into rotation performance, these sorts of things. Do you segment, do you segment your sales force into those that handle the pricing quotes and those that handle the... We had that anyway, but I'll be honest, with COVID, in effect, we are changing our sales force to a greater inside sales capability, which handles more of that. Whether customers want it or not, I think you've got to push down that path. Otherwise, you're too heavy in terms of cost to serve. So bring that in-house, improving our self-service logics, mm -hmm. and then having your, your external sales force much more around business development, growth, yeah. and, and the differentiation actions. That's great. And I'll ask the same question I asked um, Sarah, which would, would, what would be the most important determinants of successful selling? <sighs> 
I think that it's it's understanding what what is important to the customer, and and that's where I come back. It's an easy in our business to say I'm competing against brand X when I like to say you're competing against the customer status quo. So it's the way that they do things at the moment. So the ability to see a different angle and to be able to engage the customer and for them to buy that differentiation. Okay, that's great, Michael. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, perhaps I can come on to um, to to John. Hello. Thanks. Thank you. So John, can I go through the same questions with you? So selling functioning in the Royal Mail. Perhaps you could give us an overview. Yeah, so it's about 400 people in the UK, um, as you said at the top, Phil. Uh, broadly, they're split into four camps. Uh, a headline level was split into the Parcel Force sales team and the Royal Mail sales team. Um, well, I've been part of the same group for an awful long time, but um, two totally different product sets, different systems, different customer base, different everything. So there's there's no similarity between the Royal Mail and the Parcel Force sales operations, I think, for once for a better word. Um, in total, it's about £5 billion worth of revenue, I think, uh, although I haven't absolutely validated it. It's probably the largest business-to-business uh, -business trading base in the UK that we've got. So 230,000 trading customers, um, 30,000 of which we've got direct account managed relationships with. The remainder are uh, what we call non-account managed, but they're a, they're a business account with us. An important um differentiating point I think it's worth making Phil at this juncture is people often think we are the post office Royal Mail is the post office and vice versa we're not I think we're slightly unique in that way when compared to other posts which we are separate organizations we used to be combined but Royal Mail is a private business now post office is still partly government owned and the post office is uh, in a simplistic form our retail sales channel for consumers like you and I as individuals or people that don't qualify for a Royal Mail business account, albeit people can buy those directly through Royal Mail as well. So there's some overlap mm -hmm. um, uh, there as that market continues to evolve. That's great. So uh, perhaps you can talk us through your sort of key markets and competitors, and it's quite a competitive environment out there. It's quite competitive environment. Our, our key markets are really broad field. So of course we've got the public sector and government. We've got the our old traditional letters market for, for want of a better word. You know, people do still occasionally send them. Um, <laughs> there's the advertising market. So the door-to-door -door, uh, leaflets are will, I'm reluctant to say junk mail, but that might be the, the easiest way that people relate to it. Um, of course, then there's the parcels market, which is the fastest growing part that we're, we're in at the moment. It's been the fastest growing part of the business for a little while. COVID has accelerated that probably about five years. Mm. Um, and then we've got the international market. So that is twofold, obviously, UK-based customers looking to export to wherever around the world. And a handful of customers that have foreign bases. So although I don't have a foreign-based sales team, we still handle inquiries directly from from abroad as well and that's typically china actually but of course um, uh, western europe and the states as well in terms of competitors in those different segments they are quite different the parcels one um, many big names that you'll know so hermes amazon logistics uh, dpd are probably our key competitors we've also got the major integrators dhl ups fedex tnt who on a slightly different part of the market, more traditional competitors for parcel force rather than more mail, but those lines are definitely blurred now as the focus is on 
business to consumer uh, growth. In the letters market, our only real competition is our sales because we have to operate a wholesale division because we're a regulated business. Um, so uh, companies like Whistle or Secured Mail, who ultimately are a front end, but we wholesale our products too. And then no, that traffic ultimately ends up in our network uh, anyway. Mm -hmm. I should say for clarity, I'm not responsible, nor can I have access to any of the wholesale uh, part of the business. It's one of the, um, one of the walls between uh, mm -hmm. the business. Thank you, uh, John. And I think we saw in, in, in the press recently uh, the incredible results that um, Royal Mail have had. Was it 800 million above expectation uh, uh, for last year, which is quite a nice thing to have? <laughs> yes, but it's 700 million, Phil. Sorry. Um, God, that's okay. It's 100, 100 million. million. <laughs> cool. Um, no, you're absolutely right, Phil. And it, and it is uh, it is great to have, uh, but that comes from quite a low position because our last market update prior to that was we were likely to be loss-making. And actually, it's interesting um, li listening to the others talk. So we're we're really in the penny stocks business in many ways. We're a, we're a high-volume, low-margin business um uh, regardless so it's quite hard to drive to drive a profit out of what we do partly because we're a regulated business and mm. there's certain restrictions placed upon us on what we have to do which is brilliant it's a privilege but it's challenging um in ever increasing with ever increasing costs plus the very competitive nature of our uh, fastest growing competitors in amazon and hermes and the like so where do you recruit your salespeople from well, actually, Phil, we've got quite low churn. Um, so the very vast majority of uh, the sales team have got quite quite long tenure. Um, uh, 12 years is the average, um, but there's there's many with, with quite a lot more than that. The biggest recruitment drive, and you're, you're familiar with this, of course, is the apprentices. So we've brought on quite uh, three cohorts of apprentices. Um, so not new recruitment, sorry, it is new recruitment, but not to replace vacancies. That's an investment in our future as opposed to um, replacing people that have left when we do get vacancy let's call it a normal vacancy in in the run of mill either through channel people leave or or, or we usually decide we're not the right organization for them um, we're quite lucky that many of our are because it is such a competitive market and actually in many ways it's quite a generalist sell if you're selling parcel services um, to company a we've got a really rich uh, vein of people who are quite willing to join us and, and would like to join Royal Mail from one or some of our major competitors. So recruiting, thankfully, is is quite easy. Um, although I uh, I, I uh, empathise with some of what Sarah said, that's all internally done at the moment, which can sometimes prove challenging. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, that's it's it's not too much of an issue for us. That's great. So um, talk us through the typical sales process. Um, uh, I'm not sure there is a typical sales process, Phil, just simply because of the variation in customers mm. and size that we deal with. So I think I don't segment the customers anymore by sector now. They are typically segmented by uh, size and geographies and so on. And if I think across the regions or the portfolios of customers that we have, there could be a, uh, a government local authority uh, sending letters right next to an e-pure play e-commerce retailer and that sales journey is very different but needs to be conducted by the same person which is which is uh, obviously uh, can be a bit of a challenge mm -hmm. um, very very simply though the sales process is really about understanding the opportunities that exist with any of those with any of those customers and 
uh, we've got a huge chunk of our work actually just goes into retention. Um, so the, the market's kind of ours to lose, really. So And we know we're the soft underbelly. So a big focus of ours is just keeping what we've we've got, quite frankly, or at the very least, making sure that's growing at the same rate that the market is growing and, and hopefully faster. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a, there's a lot of work that goes into that. Uh, beyond that, it is almost a cliched identifying the opportunities, just as the others have said, trying to drive value into, into what we do. Um, we are rarely the cheapest in the market, uh, which is... Uh, it can be a challenge as long as we're um, delivering the right quality and the right service and product mix, then it's uh, it's relatively easy to overcome in, in that respect. And, and we're normally pretty good at that. Uh, I'm not sure if that covers it, Phil, but there is yeah. such a variation of, of process. Part of what we've been doing over the last couple of years is removing a lot of the process to allow people to just use their expertise to manage their, their part of the business in the way that they see fit. That's brilliant. And so finally, John, what would you say are the most uh, important determinants of successful selling for the raw mail? So for us, it's, it's, typically, it's typically around being a, that, that best all-round service proposition. So um, I, I didn't cover it in, in your earlier question. One of our fastest growing sectors is the marketplaces. So people who sell on Amazon and eBay. So small businesses that you or I could start up, but selling through, through eBay and Amazon. And actually, in that sector, there's just requirements that you have to meet, that which are the table stakes to be able to sell through those platforms um, if you're a business. So quite often, it's just a part of, of meeting those requirements. If you can't meet those requirements, you can't sell them the service. It's, it's quite straightforward. Uh, beyond that, it really is about delivering for our, on our customers' promises. So clearly, particularly in the e-commerce space, Delivery is becoming really relevant over the last year, but it's been getting more and more relevant over, over recent years. So quite often, we're the only touch point once the customer's made their checkout on whichever retailer.com uh, and our postman at the end. So the determinant really is the success of that supply chain, that yeah. final mile working and doing everything it can and handling that part of our customer's journey for the yeah. benefit of their customers. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, John. Um, Paul, can I come on to you now? And then Samantha after Paul. So Paul, perhaps so I could take you through the same questions. Sure. Yeah. So um, selling function in SUSE. So for us, we have a, a multi-disciplined go-to market strategy, Phil. Covers three main routes to market for SUSE. Uh, the first is a direct route to market where we use our own sales teams. Uh, the second is indirect, uh, where we would go to market through our channel. Uh, so we have a huge ecosystem um, and SUSE. And then the third part is through our cloud ecosystem with the hyperscalers. So Google, Microsoft and, uh, and Amazon. And as part of that, the managed service providers that also offer cloud services to the market. And so who are, you know, who are your customers? Who are your typical customers? Um so um, we operate literally in every market. There's not a, a typical market for SUSE. Uh, so we're private equity owned, world's largest independent open source provider. Uh, we will compete against IBM Red Hat, VMware, Canonical, and Oracle. Uh, they would be the four main companies that, that we compete against. But 
as I said, we're a global business. We have customers across all markets and all industries. But 45% of our revenues fell are driven in EMEA, 35% from North America, the other 20% from the rest of the world. And the reality from a SUSE perspective, being an open source company, um, we support our customers in mission critical areas of their business. So that's typically the heart of their infrastructure, either in the data center um, or in the cloud or operating at the edge. And all of that is focused with our customers on how they power their digital transformation and the management of their applications through our Rancher solution. Thank you. And in terms of salespeople, Paul, where, where, where do you recruit your sales teams? So I think in common seems to be with everybody, Phil, we use our own internal recruiters. Um, but there isn't a typical source that we would recruit from. You know, I guess like most companies, we will recruit from Red Hat, from VMware and, and from SAP. Um, although more recently, we've started to look for salespeople that have come from successful startups. And, and for us, I, I think what we found is we keep researching and keep trying to understand uh, if you like learning from every hire that we bring on board, there's five distinct qualities that we, we will recruit for rather than paying attention to where they come from. So we're always trying to bring on people that have and can demonstrate curiosity of mind. We're looking at high growth mindset and people that are committed to a high growth mindset. Clearly trying to bring on people that, that have high levels of emotional intelligence and again can demonstrate that. In the world that we live in, resilience and being able to demonstrate resilience is really important to us. And then the final piece of that five is adaptability, because the one thing that we operate in is a world that is constantly changing and, we, and it's changing for our customers, our partners and for SUSE. And we need to know that we're bringing on board people that are comfortable operating in that world mm -hmm. of adaptability. Thank you, Paul. So what's a typical sales process? So I, again, I think in, as most of, of my colleagues here have mentioned, there isn't really a typical sales process, Phil. Um, what we, where we are focused with our sales process is on how our customers buy. Um, open source, what is unique is that everything that SUSE does is available for free. Um, you know, the whole open source business model is that it is offered to the world for free. Um, what SUSE does is take that free software that is created in the community. We call that upstream. We bring it downstream. We would harden it. We secure it. Uh, we put a lot of time and effort into making sure that that software is certified with a whole host of different technologies. And of course, then we support it. So what our customers are really doing is paying SUSE to be their, their, if you like, their insurance policy from an open source perspective. That is really what we're mm -hmm. bringing to market. So what is, is really important to us is discovery um, uh, and the discovery part of a sales cycle because we believe we're selling against human bias. You and I have talked about this a lot. Mm -hmm. We put a lot of time into discovery. What are our customers trying to do and why? We then put a lot of time into defining value and enabling us to hold a point of view 
that is relevant to that customer. So we want to give our customers a document that, that defines the SUSE point of view for what it is they're trying to achieve. We'll move on from that to whether it's business case or metrics, making sure that we understand that. We're really trying to understand what does success look like to this customer? So we'll define success plans. We'll prove the value. We'll demonstrate how SUSE enables a customer to achieve that value. Then we will look to move to close. And then obviously after close, we look to move to implement the success plan and then get into a look with our customers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, did you achieve the success that you expected to? If not, why not? What did we learn together? And then hopefully get back into that cycle again uh, as we look at upselling and, and cross-selling our customers. Brilliant, thank you. And um, what would you say were the key determinants for your business? Well, some, something that I hope, and you know, maybe Lynette will pick up on um, uh, later. So things that are really important to us are behaviours. Mm-hmm. So we measure the behaviours of our sales force on a weekly and a monthly and a quarterly basis. And the reason that we do that is that we're trying to understand what behaviours are the ones that will give us higher predictability on success. So we use um, software to help us do that. Um, but we literally measure everything that salespeople do. Um, at the moment, I guess there are five things, five determinants that, that we look for. The first one is, have we established a right to win? You know, have we really demonstrated that Sousa has a right to win? The next thing we look for is, have we established champions? And it's funny, you know, I've been selling for 30 years and having a champion has never left, no matter what sales methodology um, uh, that, you know, that I've personally worked with or our companies have worked with. And it's still really important today. Something we ask all of our salespeople is having left the customer who's now doing the selling on your behalf, um, you know, and how do you know who is that, that person? Um, then the next piece for us is have we established proper exec-to-exec relationships? So every single one of our execs in Sousa uh, is measured on time that they spend with customers and the time that they put into sales cycles mm-hmm. with our customers. And we're really looking at did we establish exec-to-exec in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end of, um, of a sales cycle? Then what we're trying to understand, Phil, is what is the difficulty in winning versus the prize? Yeah. Um, so when, when you are in the world of open source, what you do is free and what you do is mission critical. It can be very difficult to replace an incumbent. Yeah. So we've got to understand if we're putting energy in, what is the prize? How difficult is it going to be? And what is the prize that we can get for winning that? And if something's going to take a lot of energy and it's going to be really difficult and the outcome is a 100K win and we're not sure if we can win anything else, we will ask our sales teams to move on from that. Um, It's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to establish long-term relationships that we can cross-sell and upsell to. And then the last piece we're really looking at is can we exceed the business case? Um, you know, so so having done that discovery work, having built a point of view and looked at value, how can we exceed that business case? Because again, by exceeding it, 
that is going to help us stay in the you know with our customers uh, for the uh, for the long term and customer success and longevity are really really important to us and you know John picked up on that earlier. That's brilliant. Thank you, um, Samantha. If I can come on to you. Yes. Hi everyone. Um, Hi. Maybe I should start with just a little bit of background about Elastic because I'm sure nobody nobody knows who Elastic is, um, except every single open source developer does. So it's a we're a listed company on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, I was fortunate enough the last time I let um, Phil down. Um, I was supposed to be presenting. I phoned him to say I can't present today because I have to go to the listing. Would you mind if I dumped you to go to a listing in New York? Um, so very successful listing. Um, um, similar to what um, Paul, Paul was saying is um, as an open source company, you know, we've got, we've had over half a billion downloads. So we have, you could say half a billion developers using Elasticsearch. And really what Elastic is, is it's a search company. So if you think of Uber, every time you're searching for a driver, the driver's searching for you on a map. That's elastic. If you look, go onto Wikipedia, that's elastic. But what happened is our open source developers took the code and they built it into the enterprise. So our customers are banks, telcos, software technologies, you, you, any developer who's looking to build a search angle, whether it's searching data or traces or security logs or um, fraud or money laundering, you name it, they're using search. So that's who Elasticsearch are. Um, we've, we take to market a platform. So we're trying to drive a platform um, where you put all your data into this platform and then you've got a layer on top of these curated UIs that help you search for whatever you're looking at. So we take um, the platform to market with three sort of solutions on top of it. So the one is security. So you can go all the... Um, security analytics that goes on within a large bank. The other is observability, which means we 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 monitor the the uptime of all their hardware, their network, their infrastructure. And then our third solution is enterprise search. So with, if you're an e-commerce organization, that search box on your website is probably Elasticsearch. Or we've just launched a new um, solution which is called Workplace Search, which is you know, if you want to search your, your Slack, your Zoom, your email, your Google, your Dropbox, because you can never find anything, it's a productivity tool, you put it into your search box, and we will pull all that data from all your various applications. So that's Elastic in, in, in a nutshell. We also, like Paul, have uh, go to market as direct channel, and often Elastic is actually embedded into large software vendors. So um, a lot of our competitors the, the application, the engine of that application is our search product. They just have the UI, a different UI on top. So, um, and we've got, again, the cloud providers and, and managed service providers. So um, companies like um, Atos or Capgemini, they would take a security service to market with the elastic engine in that security managed service that they deliver to their customers. We've got three segments uh, that we focus on, uh, public sector, which is a large segment for us, um, enterprise, which is your banks, your telcos, 4,000 employees plus, and then commercial, which is 4,000 employees um, and below. Um, so we've got an enterprise sales team, but we now actually building out a high velocity inside sales team. I'm about to employ 50 people into Europe. 
um, to go after new logo and the SMB market and drive cloud adoption. So that's quite a big shift we're going through at the moment. Um, we've got four regions, Asia, US, and Europe. Europe is about 35% of the business, so um, uh, we, we're doing quite well. Um, and as I said to you before, you know, we've got the half a billion downloads. So I don't think there's a developer out there that doesn't know who Elastic is because they're all using our technology. So we've got what they, we, we're really proud of, which is this bottom-up motion. So, you know, we do a lot of, um, at the top of the funnel, we do a lot of nurturing and demand generation that goes into SDRs who we call user success teams. They pick up the phone to all the developers that have touched a, a blog or come to an event or called us for some help. Um, and we reach out to them and we say, are you successful? Are you enjoying using Elastic Open Source? Did you know we sell a commercial project product um, because they've got the free product, which is machine learning, it's security, it's alerting. So it's more functionality. So mm -hmm. for the last six years, uh, you know, this bottom up motion has been fantastic for Elastic because I would say a lot of our sales people were order takers. You know, the business, there was an influx of leads that came um, and we were talking to the developers They'd go and get the budget They'd try it out They'd tell another friend They'd say, oh, you have got to try the machine learning You know, the more developers you spoke to in an organization The more subscriptions you land um, And then what we found is our, our enterprise organization says Sure, we can't have 200 subscriptions of Elastic Why don't we build a center of excellence? So then we, we saw these center of excellences pop up where you would have a team of maybe 20 different people running Elastic as a service into an organization where they would have, you know, up to 900 projects going, coming to the center of excellence um, to use the Elastic mm -hmm. Search product. Um, and then what we started to see is, you know, if we, if we want large deals, that's not going to be done at the developer level. That's going to come from a center of excellence. It goes up to the CIO. You say to the CIO or the CTO, did you know you have 900 projects on Elasticsearch? Can we, can we talk to you about landing a platform into your organization? So our go-to-market, our sales motions divided into this bottom-up, which has been very successful for us. Um, but now we have to, um, we're bringing in, um, which is quite a shift, for, mind shift for the business, top-down as well. We need to build our brand in the executive. We need to build executive relationships. Um, because that's where you, you land the 10 to $20 million deals. So those are the two sort of key sales mm -hmm. motions that we're, going, um, we're building at the moment or enhancing. Um, our, our competitors are often our OEM products or our, uh, sort of partners, but um, it's the likes of Dynatrace, Datadog, Microsoft, AWS, um, we've got a lot of point type solution um, competitors mm -hmm. then because we've got the three solutions, but we've also got, although Azure and Microsoft are, a, 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 you know, we, we sell on the cloud and we drive consumption on the cloud and they're also a competitor. So AWS sells, a, actually they, they take our product and they wrap it as their own free product and they, they market it to their customers. So, you know, we've got lots of competitors. Um, so we cooperate with um, a lot of our competitors as well, which is quite an interesting um, dynamic. 
Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. I think you've answered quite a few of the questions we have uh, in that first first section. Perhaps I could just come back down to the sort of sales methodology and approach. I mean, do you have a standard sales methodology or is it, is it very much? We have a very, we have a very uh, defined sales process. Um, yeah. So um, everybody knows it. Um, it's built into Salesforce. Um, you know, it really starts with inspiring our customers. So whether that's through open source, through testing the, the free products, and you know, we we do a lot of the the nurturing and the hand holding so yeah. that they test it. Then we um, have we engage with them um, specifically from the bottom up. You know, we we engage. We let them, we talk about a proof of concept. We we talk about our machine learning. We'll, def we'll define the technical fit, then we define the budget, then we put a proposal together and then we negotiate. That's the bottoms up. The top down sales process, we're going to, um, is, 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 um, is a little more to what Paul said, where we're going to say, you know, can we come in and do an assessment with you? Can we truly understand the business value and the impact? How do we put an ROI business case on the table? How do we define a detailed scope of work? Um, how do we, how do we um, once we've sold that deal, how do we circle back and ensure mm -hmm. that you receive the value that we did? So you've got two, um, although it's one process, um, we, we've added another layer of complexity for that bottom-down motion to a certain set of accounts where we'll invest with ideation consultants and value engineers to put um, to drive more strategic value in the conversation, which should result in larger platform deals for us. That's great. Um, well, I think we've covered all of the sort of foundational questions of the team, and I'm just going to ask Lynette. Um, Lynette, do you have any any particular questions you feel you'd like to ask at this stage? Um, group? Yeah, yeah. So if if I could, please. I mean, perhaps picking up on um, something that. Paul said about um, behaviours and certainly looking at, at sales behaviours, the, the kinds of things that you've been describing around developing solutions and value we know is, is very much associated with success. Um, but some time back, we discovered that there were certain things that weren't associated with success. Uh, so, so some behaviours like sort of self-presentation and report build, rapport building and that sort of thing. Um, and then also we have this idea that about U-shaped versus linear behaviour. So there are some behaviours like closing, where if you don't do enough of it, it's not very successful. But if you do too much of it, you can put the client off. So that's a U-shaped behaviour. But you have others which are linear, and the more you do of them, the more likely you are to, to achieve sales success. So, so with those thoughts in mind, I, I really wanted to ask people to just reflect on how, how their experiences have been of COVID, and say, have there been any changes that you've seen in things that make sales success uh, in that over as, as you know, resulting from COVID? And then maybe as a sort of second question, say, what of that do you think will stick? And what do you think we will kind of revert back to? Um, since I mentioned Paul, Phil, is it okay for us to go to Paul first? Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, COVID. Um, I think what is interesting about COVID is that if I look on the, the positive side of it, if that's even even possible, um, but I think what it, it, it has driven is opportunity everywhere. Um, and, you know, there really is opportunity 
now more than, than at, at any point in my sales career. And I think that's been driven by the fact that customers need help in establishing particularly accountable value from software vendors now more than they've ever done. So I think you've, you've got a situation where as sales teams have shifted to be home-based and customers have shifted to be home-based, the physical connection between a buyer and seller has changed. A lot of selling has moved to be um, around research, even more so than it has ever been. So you've got customers through research, through their networks. And I, you know, I, I keep hearing numbers of 70% of a sales cycle is done before they would engage with a sales team. I think sometimes it's even more than that. So if I go back to if that is the case, then you know you are selling against human bias because if I'm a, if as a human being, if I've done all of my research, that research means I've formed an opinion. And that opinion may be for you or, or against you. So I think what that is meant is new ways of thinking around how you solve a problem of selling. So we've we've switched. Samantha mentioned this earlier. When I joined SUSE, we didn't have a digital sales team. Everything was field-based. We now have close to 70 digital salespeople uh, that sit in EMEA in North America. We're using software more than we've ever done um, to, to understand when is the right place in a sales cycle to go target a person. You know, we're starting to understand that it's actually somewhere between the fifth and the seventh time um, of trying to get in contact with somebody that they will begin to listen if you've got the, the right message. Um, it, it's between five and seven that, that they will actually say, okay, I do have a project. I am thinking about this. I would like you now to come and talk to me. So I go back to resilience and you've got to look for people in this world that, that have resilience uh, you know, I've, I've put in my response to you, Phil, as far as I'm concerned, mm -hmm. the old ways of selling and indeed sales leadership, from my perspective, are dead. You've got to have a point of view as a salesperson. And what that means is you've got to understand the industry. You've got to understand what you're doing. You've got to understand a bit about the person that you're trying to sell to. And you've got to have a point of view about why you're relevant to that individual and why you're relevant to that company. Um, and I think, you know, you've got to keep at that with resilience because I said it's five to seven tries before somebody is going to trust you enough to say, actually, I do have something. So you're seeing that change. So you've got resilience now being important. Curiosity of mind being really, really important. Understanding, getting behind why do customers do what they do? Why do they think what they think? How have they formed that opinion? And it's only by getting behind it and understanding it that you can start to then put your story in the context of what that customer is trying to do. But you can do it in a very differentiated way. So we're using tools that, you know, we've, we've never, I'm using a tool like Mural, which I'd never used before that allows us to whiteboard digitally. We're putting pre-sales people in beside our digital sales teams, sitting side by side, so that if a customer says, can you show me this? 
there's somebody they can bring into the sales cycle there and then. And that we can show, we can demonstrate, having understood that concept, we can start to show the art of the possible really, really quickly. So I don't think, I've got you know customers now, Phil and, and Lynette, that are saying to us, Paul, gone are the days when I want you to turn up with five or six or seven people and come see me you know, three or four times a quarter. I want to see you twice a year. Take me up for a beer and a dinner. We'll go out twice a year. That's great. The rest of the time, I'm very, very comfortable now dealing with you digitally in this way and in this format. So that's what's changed. And I'm seeing a lot of our sales team really struggling. A lot of our sales leaders are really struggling getting their head around how you cope, lead, and drive in a digital world that is very, very different when they're used to that human interaction, that physical connection with a customer and a customer saying, I only want to see you twice a year. Yeah, so you, you, you know, they are, or leadership are having to change their skill set and their mindset to how we lead in this digital world. And, you know, look, on a personal level, I've had to learn more about mental health in this past 12 months than I have in 30 years of my career because I've got to find new ways of understanding whether people on the other end of the video camera may be struggling, may not be telling me, but, but you know, are struggling mentally because they cannot get out of, you know, this four by four room that they, they sit in, you know, five days a week and have sat in for the, the last 12 months. And I think as sales leaders, we're having to deal much, much more with, Samantha used a word that I love earlier, inspiration, we're having to get more creative at how do we inspire people to, to get out there every single day and, and go do the job uh, in a very, very different way, in a much more digital way, a much more creative way. And, and Lynette, back to how you finished the question, I don't think it will personally, I don't think it will ever go back. I don't think it will ever go back to people getting on a plane en masse you know, we used to talk about when I was at SAP, we used to talk about parking the bus. Um, I don't think that's going to happen anymore where five, six, seven people turn up to see a customer, you know, once a month. Um, I don't think we will go back to that again. That's, that's, you know, just my personal point of view. And then behaviorally, what we are starting to now measure because we want to have a different dialogue with our salespeople. Um, you know, not just about pipeline and revenue. We want to understand what they do every day and what do they achieve as a result of what they do and how do we help them do that better. So what we're trying to understand from their behavior is to hold a mirror up to them, use software that allows us to do it, but actually hold a mirror to them so that we can have a much more coaching-focused dialogue with our sales teams um, and that's proving both a, a big positive in terms of some of the mental health that we talked about, our ability as leaders to coach and support very, very differently. And again, I don't think those things will, will ever change either. So sorry, a long-winded way, but, but you know, that's my, my point of view. No, really fascinating. Thank you, Paul. Um, Samantha, Paul's called you out a couple of times on this. So what's your view? How, how have you seen sales behaviours? changing have you say changed your style as a sales leader what's going to stick um 
Um, we've we've always been a distributed com company, so um, by design. So for us, um, COVID has been fantastic for our business. We've seen fantastic growth. Um, fortunately, um, I think the shift to um, digital. And, and Zoom meetings hasn't been too difficult for our teams because we've hired talent, you know, all over the world. It's it's something that, you know, it's quite natural for us to be engaging all on video all the time. So video, video I think, is really helpful. Uh, but I think to build on what Paul said, I think the what's become more apparent is the role of marketing and digital marketing in our success. And the cross-functional collaboration as a leader internally is becoming more critical. Um, even today, sitting on a pipeline call, what is my contribution from partners, from, from marketing, from the SDR organization? So it's, for me, the, 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 my leadership um, challenge has been, how do I bring them on board with what we're trying to achieve so that we're all working towards these revenue objectives? Um, and how do I inspect their behavior as if it's revenue um, generating behavior, which maybe they haven't, you know, maybe that sort of behavior I haven't seen in my previous companies. So more so in, than ever, digital marketing is going to be an understanding the buying cycle in depth um, by industry, by persona type, as they move through that their buying cycle. Um, what is our role to play? When do we play it? Is, do we have the right content? And then when we do show up at that 70 or 80% chance, we've got one, one chance um, and you're going to make it count and make sure you have the conversation, ask the right discovery questions without the customer feeling interrogated. Because I think too often, you know, that that's happens and get the information we need to, to, to demonstrate value and relevance and, you know, to, to shine. And then we've, uh, we've also looked at other roles where, again, to build on what Paul said is where, um, you know, how do we help the customer learn to use our technology in the cloud? Everyone's moving to the cloud. So um, how, do we, how do we hold their hand? Are we available on chat? Can we jump on a quick Zoom call, et cetera? Um, so we, we're investing in, in uh, almost user success. Um, right from the beginning of the sales cycle um, through to customer success um, and then to support. I think the buying cycle is extending um, and we, we're seeing a lot more focus on customer success as well. Hmm. Um, and Paul says it's going to stick, Samantha, your view? Is this a permanent shift? Um, I think we might shift. Um, I think it, it's... Um, I see ourselves somewhere in the middle. I think, you know, I, what we've enjoyed, I mean, you know, our end of quarters, we've been getting POs at, the, at, at 11, 12 o'clock at night because just like we're at home, the procurement officers at home, the legal teams at home. So it's been good for us, you know, in, in terms of forecasting and getting those deals across the line. But I do think in time, you know, um, certain companies will expect their teams to go back to the office. I don't think travel will ever be the same, but I do see ourselves, um, I think there's a, a, a balance and maybe we're going to shift slightly back, uh, maybe shift 10% so back not, to the Not, not on the bus, like Paul was saying, but maybe no. a minibus. 
Yeah, maybe maybe a car with one or two people oh, rather than a bus. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. That's great. So, um, John, you've been having a, a good time as well in, in, in COVID. And what sort of shifts have you seen in these sales behaviours and, and will it stick? So it's, well, we, I don't know if we've been having a good time in it. We've, we've been having quite a successful time because demand for our product has increased. But actually, the other side of that is a huge part of our custom base reduced their needs as well as offices were shut, shops shut. So we had the, uh, the challenge that all of our customers wanted something at the same time. So whether that's, I've got more stuff to go, I need more trucks, I want a cheaper price, I need to renegotiate, blah, blah, blah. Or I've got less, I don't want you to bill me, can I get rid of my surcharges, my profile's changed, can you collect from somewhere else and not here? So everybody wanted something. Uh, I think behaviourally, what that did, interestingly, and it's a, a, an unintended consequence of that, is it really stress tested our activity levels. So we all, I think we probably all reach a point where we go, that feels like an acceptable activity level for us, whether that's whatever it is, 10 calls, 100 calls per week, per day. We just quadrupled everything because the demand was just there. And I say we handled it. I'll pick up on Paul's point of mental health. We dealt with it. And we got some, uh, and our people got some um, uh, leniency from customers because everybody was accepting of the situation. Uh, I think that's fair to say. But our people worked incredibly hard to just try and deal with it with best intentions. And that's back to that mental health piece. So all of a sudden, it didn't matter whether you, you were a, a digital or a desk person or a field person before, if you had 50 customers, one customer or a thousand customers, all of a sudden, everyone's doing the same thing <laughs> at home through this screen and it was a it was a leveler in that respect um so on the on the returning to offices returning to travel so i've got a dispersed sales team across the uk but i've got five or six big well not big sorry medium-sized sales centers indoor sales teams and in the main those people are chomping to get back into those sales centers and i have to be honest i've not yet decided whether having them back or keeping them at home is the right answer for their mental health actually. And the, the community aspect of indoor sales selling, I'm convinced being back together in my environment, in the, in the industry I'm in is a, is a benefit, but I'm also really aware. I don't want to rob people of some of the freedoms that they've, the flexibility that they've, they've started to get used to. So that's going to be an interesting balance to, to strike. And, and travel, I, I absolutely agree, I don't think will be the same. But particularly from our, some of our customers, our mid-sized customers upwards, there's still a real physicality to what we do. Actually going to, as we say, going to the back door and just having a look at the stuff coming out of it is where we spot a lot of our opportunities. And if I can't create the desire for what are our traditional field salespeople to actually force themselves out of their home offices to go and have a look at what's going on in a customer, I'm nervous we're going to miss some of those opportunities because that is a, a great source of so even if it's just a competitor's van turning up we won't see that anymore if we're if we're not there but i think that's really interesting and, and just as, as 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 paul and samantha were talking i was reflecting behaviorally i don't think we've set the standards yet i know i've not said to my team the standards when you turn up to a zoom call or a team's meeting is you should still put your suit on or you shouldn't or you should present in this way or a lot of the things that I think we probably take for granted in the sales profession because we there's that intuitive knowing of what's appropriate when we turn up 
I don't think we've done that yet. I don't think we've found that that standard. And I know when we uh, park the virtual bus with some of our customers, they turn up in all sorts of different attires with different approaches. Some are more relaxed. Some are happy to have their cats jumping over the place. Some are talking to their wives or husbands. And we, we've not really found the level in all circumstances there. So I'm not quite sure we, what behaviours I want to drive there. Am I, am I really comfortable with this more relaxed approach? Do I feel like we're getting to know our customers better because we can see inside their houses or, or not? Is that a good thing? Do I want people with raw male backgrounds all of the time? I, I, I'm not sure. So I think there's a real uh, a base level of standards that we've, we've probably got to decide on. Uh, that, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. And so, Sarah, you've heard some different views there about whether it's, you know, what behaviours have changed or whether whether things are going to stick or not. Where, where are you on that? Um, so it's been an interesting one for us. So we've had sort of mis mixed successes and challenges due to COVID. Um, we do have a lot of customers in the retail sector. So as the same with John, really, we had, even now, lots of challenges around you know, payment, everyone wanting something, extended payment terms, lower prices, whatever it might be. Um, so we have had to deal with a lot of that. I, my sales team were already home-based. Uh, we do have an office in the UK, randomly it's in Solihull. Um, so none of us were, were going that frequently there anyway, because we're all over, the, we're all over the place. I've got some overseas. But there is a big difference, obviously, because we're, everyone is now permanently at home and it's definitely changed their roles and I'm not I'm not sure all of them are happy with it so whereas before they were out and about seeing our big um well, I've got two well, different teams different sales teams you know I have a renewals team who look after all our existing business I have a team who look after our big massive customers who, who buy from us directly who and though that team were all very much used to being out in their offices you know three times a week they go and sit in those customer offices and have lots of different meetings and find lots of opportunity that way They've definitely struggled a bit more with that by being based at home. And then I have a big team who, are, who will look after our channel partners. It's been the most challenging for them because they've probably suffered the most in terms of sales. So, and, I, and the focus is really, you know, I've put a lot more focus on them because I know they're at home and they're not traveling in the car four hours to go and see a partner to then see, you know, be in a meeting for two hours. So because they're at home, I have put a lot more demands on them in terms of, you know, really working through how do we get value from our existing customers? You know, what's the plan behind that? Who are we gonna contact? Why, how are we gonna contact them? This whole kind of planning planning this approach before you, you get in touch. So I've been making them, them do a lot more of that. And I say making because I've had quite a lot of resistance to it. They, they've not been really comfortable because they've been very much a, a team used to working with channel partners. And now I'm making them go and talk to end customers. Um, some have been happy with that approach, but others have really struggled. So it's been it's been quite a difficult time, and I, I use the word making. But you know, I, I'm very much kind of running initiatives and asking them to to be part of that, just because our our sales numbers are our growth targets are huge, and it's been really challenging to achieve those those numbers. So in, in terms of going forward. Um, I think actually a lot it really depends on our customers and our partners. So if our customers and partners keep the same approach and, and tend to be now more home-based, and if they don't want to see us as regularly, then we are going to be very much, you know, an inside sales team going forward. And for me, that then means, do I need the same set of people that I have today 
if we're going to be, you know, going on as an inside sales team, then I potentially do need a different set of people. So that's one thing that I'm looking at at the moment for our new financial year. Um, so I, I, I expect that some of our partners probably will get back in. I think some of our big customers, you know, maybe they will, but it, it's hard to it's hard to tell at the moment. Even, you know, the company that I'm working in, uh, with we have three huge offices out in Canada. The owner of the company was very much all about people being, you know, in the office, and he's now letting go of two of those offices, and we'll only have one, and we'll move to a, you know, permanent part-time office-based solution. So people will be expected to be in two days every fortnight, and the rest of the time working from home. So we've seen big shifts now that we you know we'll never go back now to how it was. So um, yeah, it, it's kind of poses it's posing different challenges. You know, some good opportunities because people have got more time on their hands because you're not mm -hmm. traveling and commuting. But it's um, it's challenging because I think a lot of salespeople perhaps aren't enjoying it as much because they like the getting out there and seeing people and having meetings and having a lunch. You know, and that's the fun part. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of them have lost that now. It's very much, you know, calls to get through business objectives and to sell. Yeah. Really, that's really fascinating. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and coming to, to Michael, so how is it in the big bearings world? I mean, changes in behaviours, what will stick? Um, well, well we, our business did fall off a cliff when the COVID crisis hit. There's no argument about that. And if you think about, they talked about blue skies and things like that and CO2 emissions down. That was less energy, less work. Um, that was a real shock because we're an engineering company and we're going through that transition from the best product to representing value and being able to communicate that value. So I think it was good for us in terms of accelerating it. Um, I'll take one of Sarah's themes. My pressure, and, and it gets reacted, is sales is a process and you've got to, mark, you've got to track that process to know what's going on. And we're going down that path. I think COVID has improved their respect and understanding for a process because they could see customers and I'll say contact without context. I'll see my customer because, well, when you can't see them, um, then they start to ask questions. Well, if, even if it's a Zoom meeting, what, what are we going to talk about? So the quality of preparation from our people, I think it was a good positive accelerator in that respect. Um, I'll come back on one of Paul's points that, sales manager as coach before and after, absolutely vital. And that's my point about the process that if you don't actually know what your people are doing remotely, um, you can't help them and you can't give each individual the type of support they need. And that sales manager as coach comes also over onto the mental health side that it keeps a dynamic of contact, which I think is important. So I, things will go back but not all the way. I think th too much has gone, too much water under the bridge. A lot of customers, whether they are right or wrong, they think they know more of the answer before they see you. Um, and, and so that, that's, and, and it's both, they do and they don't, but back on Paul's point, if they think that's what the situation is, that is their reality. And, and you've got to then work with that one. So um, our change points of more digital and internal sales are fundamental because it is about cost to serve. And you've got to then confront and say, our salespeople were doing 
work that others in the organization could do and they'd put their arms around the customer it's my customer i think we've been able to break some of those things down and get more of a team feel and things um so i think those are important points and i also think we'd talked about agile in our business over time but it became real if you did it right so when you started these things you'd have people turn up with powerpoint presentations then after you did the cycle a number of times they figured they couldn't keep up with powerpoint so they actually did the actions and they talked about it and you got much better quality of discussion understanding and development than you had before. So I think we're moving faster in the things that we do. And if I come back on my final one that knits a number of them together, we're starting to learn. And ours is more of a, I think, John, it's your sort of, I call it a production operation. You've got resource and you've got to keep on applying it. The concept of sales velocity, when you're looking at it, not as a number, but as a, a trending tool, number of opportunity, average value, hit rate and cycle time. And that what it does is it opens up so much discussion that's individualized to a person and their opportunity it's not the number that i value it's the way that it gives you a context you can aggregate to something that's really useful from a business point of view and it's helped us significantly to come back um, and to be able to be fewer opportunities higher value um, and shorter cycle time so you, know, you knit those things in together yeah. so and I'd also, my final, final point, 2020 was about, I call it adrenaline, where everyone decamped and did what they needed to do. We are still figuring out, as John said, what is the new normal? Um, and we want to shape some of that. We want to hold people away from some old habits, but you also want to give people a level of autonomy that you didn't actually I'd say even bother to think about previously. And COVID has confronted a lot of things where, you know, the home working will be a bigger part of inside sales, customer service and roles that we, we just said you need to do them in the office. Now we recognize that you don't need to do it and you can get productivity gains, satisfaction, but you do need an office environment for the social aspects, which I think are still there, mm -hmm. the soft mm -hmm. elements, and also to bring new people into the business. You're good people, they can work from home. I'm not yet convinced that you can employ new hires in our web business and they can do the job. Um, and getting to see customers, we'll get back and, and we've been maintaining contact, but it's much more justified um, and um, I'd say development-based contact. So there's my summary. That's a superb summary. Thank you. So, so Phil, back, back to you. I've been hearing, I think, some, some themes here around pre-preparation coaching, um, well-being and mental health, um, a sort of more digital and mm -hmm. inside sales, and then perhaps still working on what the new normal is, I think, were my, my quick summary points. Um, but back to you. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think one. I'm very conscious of time here as well, because I know that uh, we're almost on the hour. But I do have, I think, a final question that I'd like to ask in a more plenary situation, if that's OK, because you mentioned the word agility earlier on. And um, a lot of us are either having to execute strategies that are transforming the way that we work internally. And some of us are actually selling transformation to our customers. Perhaps some of you are doing both, both selling transformation and also managing transformation inside your own organizations. I was taken with a comment some years ago by Forrester, which talked about 
the length of time it takes to go from strategy to execution in the field. And uh, the frustration was of CEOs, uh, of sales teams, was that on average, it took about 18 months to take an idea that was set about in the board to execution in the field. And I've been wondering in this current COVID world in which we're in, whether the pace of change, the pace of taking an idea or a strategy and executing it in the field is either quicker, slower, or about the same as it was. Are you with me with the question? So I'm not gonna single anyone out. I don't know if anyone would like to answer that question, but I'm, I'm really interested in this pace of change that's taking, uh, uh, that's taking part right now and whether or not you've got a point of view about that. Would anyone like to, to kick off? John, I think I see. Yeah, if, if I may, I think, <clears throat> I think it's interesting. I've been speaking quite a lot about this. I think the pace of change for the headline of change has been just quicker. It's been more rapid through necessity. But I think what we'll start to see in the fullness of time is that change hasn't been as well thought through or as well executed as we think it is now. Okay. And, and that won't be the same. I'm generalising, of, of course. But if I think of... There's a reason that that execution of change takes 18 months, if that's the right time, to get from the boardroom to the front line. And that's because it's complex. Um, and, and of course, there's always ways you can rationalise it, you can make it quicker. And necessity is the mother of change, isn't it? But there's going to yeah. be an awful lot of things that aren't done properly, have got sticking plasters over them. And, and I was reflecting on, on what Michael said. The... I think we're drawing down on relationship capital. So where we've been working the same way, whether that's in the office or with physical relationships with our customers, we're able to maintain those relationships, we've got them. Where we're starting new relationships with people, we don't have that relationship capital to draw down on anymore. And, and, and therefore the change that we haven't thought through in our sales processes, it, that's going mm -hmm. to come, I think, out through that over the next 18 months where we realize we've got gaps. That's interesting. Any comments from, from the others? I, I would, I think I would echo that, Phil. I, um, I remember one of, the, <clears throat> one of the things you taught me well, Phil, was that <laughs> transformation at the end of it has to look entirely different to what it did when you started it. And I think the problem is, put in the context of sales, you're dealing typically with people that have got 20 years or more, even 10 years or more of ingrained behavior. Mm. Um, and not only do they have ingrained behavior, they have a process for doing things that they believe to be right. It has served them well, and it's enabled them to be successful. I think the challenge is that so much has changed so quickly. And as companies try and transform, to the point that John made, if we don't think it through properly, the problem is we will leave so many of our employees behind. Yeah, so you end up with transformation actually happening at different levels. You got the people in the org that get it, that go with it. They're the ones that are highly adaptable. High levels of emotional intelligence are highly adaptable, they're highly resilient. Mm -hmm. They will go for it, they don't mind getting it wrong. Yeah? But you, you need leadership that comes with them. You need leadership that's highly adaptable, yeah, that has high levels of resilience as well. Um, uh, and the challenge is you've got to bring those things at the same time. So where I struggled with transformation in my own organization, and I've seen this in a whole number of orgs, Phil, the problem is transformation goes from the top down. 
in selling, it has to be the opposite way. You've got to get the first level leadership to be the ones that transform first because the field looks up to that level of leadership. And, if, and as they look up, if all they get is what they had before, because this level hasn't bought into it, then your transformation is going to take five times, 10 times longer. And, and what I've seen is a lot of companies forget. They try and do it top down. Actually, it's the first level sales leadership in the context of sales that will make or break a sales transformation. And I've learned that to my peril. I, I've gotten it wrong because I didn't concentrate there. And when I've realized that and you start to concentrate there, you get sales transformation that happens a lot quicker. I'm just going to add something onto that, which I think is we need to acknowledge that anyone in our business has had a hard 12 months. And so it's not like a small number of people have changed. And I think we've got to then think the CEO doesn't know the answers. And I think that what I want to try and do in our business is listen and marry the top and the bottom together. So Paul, I buy in, if you don't get your sales managers on board, the day-to-day -day life of salespeople doesn't change. They, they get the same old, same old. So it doesn't matter what words, what happens. So if you can harness some of that, and that's where I come back on that context in our business of agile, of giving them situations where they have to participate and that they have to then acknowledge what these changes are, then, then you loosen it up. And I'm not convinced we know the answers at the moment either. So you're heading in some directions about how you operate with your business and how your customers will act. But I think we each need to validate them as we move forward because um, you know, there's, there's a lot of dynamic within the buying and the buying communities that we deal with that are going to shift and you cannot assume you know the answer. So Top-down transformation isn't transformation as such. Um, so how do we bring the people along and that they create the wave? Really interesting. I, you know, I'm conscious with over time and I don't want to keep you, uh, you know, longer than, uh, longer than necessary, but I, I, if there, are there any other inputs to, to the question or we can kind of draw things to a close, I think. Lynette, are there any final comments you'd like to make? No, I mean, I, I think just a really, really insightful and very Absolutely. interesting conversation. Thank you. Yeah, can I say a huge thanks to you all for your time? And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the, what the academics make of all this, Lynette. I expect you will be as well. Um, and I hope that in some form we can share back with you um, the uh, conclusions of the research. So either I, I Karen mentioned the GSSI conference, but if that's not possible for you, I would certainly reach out to all of you individually to see whether or not you'd be interested to come together again. And we can maybe share some of the uh, insights that come out of uh, the research project, but, um, and it's wonderful seeing you all, I have to say. <laughs> Looking forward to having lunch with you or a drink with you or whatever <laughs> so soon. Okay, well, that's brilliant. Well, thank you very much, everyone. We'll say goodbye. So what's your selling approach like? Are you selling in a way that your customers want to be sold to? From our research, only 10% of salespeople sell in a way that customers want. But what do customers want when they're being sold to? It's no secret that here at Consalia, We've embedded the sales values and mindsets that customers want to see in salespeople into everything we do. 
from our sales business school through to our sales transformation offering. So how do you know whether or not you've got them? We have a very simple mindset survey to see if you possess these key values. It's really straightforward to use, will only take a few minutes to complete and you'll be sent your results straight after. You may be just a bit surprised at the results yourself. Check out the show notes at the end of this podcast episode. What you do with the results next is your choice. We're happy to dive deeper into these results to discuss what they mean, or even explore the idea of finding out if your customers see these key values in your approach.